This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Okay, here we go. Stand by. Three, two, one. The Thinking Atheist. It's not a person. It's a symbol. An idea. The population of atheists in this country is going through the roof. Rejecting faith. Pursuing knowledge. Challenging the sacred. If I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth. Not because I put my hand on a book and made a wish. And working together for a more rational world. Take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more happiness, truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way. Assume nothing, question everything, and start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast, hosted by Seth Andrews. Have you subscribed to my new second podcast? Just search it on every major podcast app, True Stories with Seth Andrews, or just go to the website, truestoriespodcast.com. Five-minute, roughly five-minute vignettes, releasing three times a week. Best part is, and I would encourage you to do this. In fact, it would really help me if you did this. If you like what you hear, share it on your page or pages, because there's nothing atheistic. There's nothing about religion. There's really nothing political. There's nothing polarizing about it. It's just interesting and fun, meaning that if you have religious people in your circle who would never give this show the time of day, you can post true stories with Seth Andrews, and before you know it, they will be listening along, and you never know where that road might take them. True stories with Seth Andrews. Subscribe today. Huge welcome to my special guest today. She is a neuroscientist. She is adjunct professor of psychology at the University of San Francisco. She is professor of science and humanities at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. Her PhD is in cognitive neuroscience. She's got degrees in psychology, French literature, a master's of music in vocal performance. She is an opera singer. Dr. Indre Viscontis also apparently has Marvel superhero powers and can move objects with her mind because apparently she can do everything else. Oh, my God. What a biography. Dr. Viscontis, thanks for coming. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, can I correct you on one thing? Because I'm kind of proud of it. Oh, yeah. During the pandemic, I got a promotion. So I'm an associate professor of psychology, no longer adjunct. What's but, an adjunct you know. anyway? Like, this is how <laughs> stupid I am. What's an adjunct I mean, no, professor? So, 
I mean, the difference is adjunct is part-time associate means that you get to essentially put in part-time hours, get a full-time salary. I got you. At least, well, don't tell my dean. (laughs) See, my mind has already gotten larger. My brain, I'm... (laughs) Okay, I heard somebody say, I'm just going to jump into the deep end and we'll talk about this notion that you and I are living in the post-truth era. And this is a broad question, but I'm just going to start. Do you think that we are living in the post-truth era, Dr. Viscontis? I mean, look, I think that's kind of a political science term. And I I really, you know, I'll leave that to the people who are kind of writing our history. But I think that what they mean is that people aren't as swayed by facts, nor do they value factual information as much as it used to be. And I think that this is just a, a, a big sea change, thanks largely to things like Google, because it used to be that if you wanted to know something, You had to ask someone who knew or you had to look it up in a book that went through all kinds of vetting. But now you can just look it up on the Internet, right? So there isn't as much of a respect for the development of knowledge and, and authority. In some ways, that's a good thing, right? Because I think that sometimes people abuse that kind of power. But in other ways, yeah, I think that you can easily convince yourself that you are an expert on something because you read three articles online about it and not really understand that those articles have a lot of issues and maybe really aren't representative of of what's true. So, I mean, I, I think people are still really interested in the truth, but I think that the way that they decide whether something is true has changed a lot and that that can be problematic. I saw something, uh, somebody said something like, we've all seen or heard an anecdote that validated an existing position. And I think we're Uh all guilty of that, right? We lean into something because we're like, aha, this is what I've said all along. And our brains naturally lean into that kind of thing, right? Well, I mean, they look for it, right? I mean, that's like, that's the classic confirmation bias, where if you have an existing belief, you don't go out and search for evidence that contradicts it, you actually pay more attention to and remember evidence that is in line with that belief. And, you know, when you think about why this might be and what role beliefs play in the brain, and, and you know, this, it just seems like a big human failure. But in fact, it's actually part of the system that allows us to have, you know, such rich experiences to have such big brains, because we have a framework from which we understand the world. We have so much information from our senses and elsewhere bombarding us all the time that we have to make sense of it somehow. And one way the brain does that is by creating a lot of shortcuts by having a model of how the world works, right? We have a model of like, the sun goes up in the sky, and then it comes down. And that means the difference between day and night. That's our model. And so It's helpful because if we walk into a room and we look at the window and we see a little bit of light, we can immediately know sort of what time it is, no matter where we are in the world and we're jet lagged as hell, you know. So I think those kinds of frameworks are really important to have. That kind of modeling is a feature of the brain. But when it goes awry is when we only look for, we only consider evidence that is in line with that model. And when presented with evidence that, uh, you know, essentially goes against that model, we ignore it or just outright say that can't be. And I think that's where we get into trouble. You know, I found you uh, via your Wondrium lecture, and I've got that link, Mm -hmm. by the way, in the description box. It was a series on 12 essential scientific concepts. And one of the lectures, you get into consciousness. And this gets weird. Right. This is this becomes <laughs> yeah. maddening. Right. 
are you a dualist? Is the mind and the brain the same thing? What is uh-huh. consciousness? Dr. Viscontis, what is your take on consciousness? How do we even dip a toe into that ocean? Yeah, I mean, I think consciousness is a little bit like pornography. We know it when we see it, right? We know when we're aware of ourselves and we kind of see it in other people. We talk about like there's, there's a light that switched on in that person's face. We can tell that there was like some kind of understanding. But I think that we also have this idea that it's a switch. It's either on or off. You know, we talk about beings as either being conscious or not. And that's really, I think, not supported by, you know, the evidence. And if you think about it for a minute, you can see how quickly this breaks down. Because the truth is, is that there are many different levels of consciousness that we all go through, right? Like, how conscious are you of this moment of your own thoughts versus, you know, what you're experiencing, what you're hearing, what you're seeing, If you're falling asleep, how conscious are you? We can change the levels of consciousness with drugs, whether it's with psychedelic drugs or anesthesia. And there are all these kinds of different ways in which we can be aware of our own thoughts and feelings and and et cetera. So I, I think consciousness is a continuum. I think of it as the the type of consciousness I think that most of us think of as the consciousness is this stream of thoughts that kind of populate our minds and that they're coming out of maybe even like just whatever our mind is and not necessarily just reacting to what's outside of our minds. And you're only really conscious of that kind of consciousness when you stop to think about the fact that you're conscious. Oh <laughs> it's kind God. of meta awareness. <laughs> it's like the refrigerator light. You know, I love that analogy. Like we, we, you know, is the refrigerator light on all the time? Or is it only on when we open the door? So yeah, so I think we see consciousness in these many different levels and stages. We see it also in many different ways in the brain, um, in terms of like how the how the brain functions, etc. But ultimately, to me, consciousness is what makes life interesting, what makes it worth living, right, is the fact that I can have an experience and then sit back and reflect upon it and discuss it with someone else. I mean, that to me is the magic of being alive. I'm tempted to borrow that line that you said, consciousness is like pornography and make that the show title. (laughs) just to get attention. I mean, that'll definitely yeah. get some clicks. I don't, I don't know. We'll think about it. So I did a show a few weeks ago and I was talking about a, an encounter I had, a, a lovely encounter with someone who was a shaman and they were kind of mm-hmm. wooey, you know, just, and they were talking about how they would uh, separate their consciousness from the physical body. And then they would go and have this sort of uh, transcendent experience mm. connecting with the cosmos. And, and I'm just, you know, I'm sitting across the table and I'm interested, but I can also feel my eyes starting to twitch. And like, and like how do you know that mm-hmm. you actually left your body mm-hmm. and you're not just wigging out? So now we get into the perception versus reality thing. And like, if I perceive it, yeah. is it real? And you get into this with music because this is one of your areas uh-huh. of focus. If I hear a sound, I interpret it as music. How much of reality is based on perception? Oh, man, that is such a deep question. Um, That's what I do. That's what I do. I set you up so that you have to navigate all of this mess and I just sit back I mean, and watch. So, Yeah, I would almost say like how much perception is actually based on reality because I think the truth is is that very little of it is based on the actual like whatever it is outside your brain. And, and let me just uh, explain a little bit about perception to tell you what I mean. 
perception is essentially taking some kind of outside stimulus, whether it's like a photon of light or, you know, a sound wave and turning it into the language of the brain. That's the interpretation part. And if you think about like, okay, like, uh, you know, if you, can you see well, like, are you, you're, you're, do you have any visual? Okay, great. So if you can see well, you probably have the impression that you can see everything. Like if you're looking out onto a view, let's say you're on top of the mountain and you're looking at the vista, you probably think, I can see this all. It's beautiful. You know, this is like my eyes are so great. They're giving me all this information. But when you think about what actually is entering your eye from the outside world, it's this tiny sliver, not only of the electromagnetic spectrum, but even in your pupil, in your eyeball, this tiny dot, this like tiny set of lights. And you're only able to actually see clearly about the amount of your thumbnail an arm's length across. That's what you see clearly. Everywhere else you're legally blind. And yet we don't have the impression that we are just filling in all of these details because we move our eyes around, et cetera, et cetera. So we have this illusion that we're perceiving this reality, this view. But the truth is, is that our brain is interpreting almost all of it. It's essentially creating this this, uh, experience for us on the basis of very poor and very little data. And to me, that one thing that makes that is is like a great recent example of how different our brains are, is that then if you close your eyes, can you picture that vista in your mind's eye? And if you can, how clear is it? Is it like just as clear as the picture? Can you actually like see the houses and the trees and count them? Is it kind of like a blurry version of it? Is it black and white? Is it just kind of some kind of impression? Or is it just a series of words? And it turns out that people have different abilities when it comes to this kind of visual imagination. People like Ed Catmull, who's like the co-founder of Pixar, isn't able to do that. He can't imagine a sphere in his mind's eye. And anyway, so I'm going on a huge tangent. But no, the, no, go the, ahead. It, it's enjoyable. I mean, I mean, it's a little overwhelming, but it's supposed to be because it's an overwhelming question, right? The question of perception. Yeah. So. So what is the reality in your head then? And, you know, so I think that the truth is, is that our perception across all of our senses is really kind of this limited little bit of sensation of the world with our senses, which are not very good. And then this massive modeling and interpretation that our brains do to give us this feeling, this illusion that we are actually experiencing reality, that we are actually perceiving reality. Is this like uh, when they say we don't actually see color, but we perceive color? Would that be something like yeah. that? Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. When you think about like, how does your brain, like color doesn't exist in the world, right? That's just what our human brain decided to assign to a particular set of wavelengths of light. And who knows whether your blue is the same as my blue. We can agree and point to a shade and say that's blue. But I have no idea whether what you see is actually blue the way that I see it. That's like a fundamental question of consciousness. But also, it's not even just the wavelength of light, though. Like, let's say, you know, blue is going to be a particular wavelength. I'm just going to sign it like a wavelength of like 650 nanometers. Random arbitrary number. That's blue. But if I go into a room and all of a sudden the lighting changes in that room, that wavelength coming off of that blue object is going to be totally different. It's going to be 720 or it's going to be something else. And I'm still going to see it as blue. My brain has assigned that object the color of blue and it takes into account the lighting conditions of the room. 
So it's not even that like, you know, it's just these different wavelengths of light have different colors. It's like this whole symphony in your brain that takes into account what are the lighting conditions? What, you know, how does this match with things that I've seen previously? How does it compare to the other things in the room? And so, yeah, so it's not like color exists out there like a like a physical reality thing. Well, you use the word symphony, which sort of segues me back into the the whole musical thing. So if I encounter a wavelength, my mm -hmm. brain is deciding that it, I don't know if deciding is the word, but I, I decide my brain decides that is a musical note or a tone. It sure does. Because think about what if you heard a bell ringing in a monastery and, you know, you're walking around somewhere in you know, I don't know, Europe or Asia or whatever, there's like an old monastery, you hear a bell ring and it just rings once. Is that music or is that lunchtime? Right? Is that calling the monks to lunch? Now imagine you hear the exact same sound wave at the very end of the most beautiful symphony you've ever heard. Is that sound wave music now? It's the same stimulus. And we can even do this with all kinds of other sounds like people, you know, there's there's this whole found sound movement in music where like you create music out of things like taking a saw and, you know, sawing through a piece of wood and it becomes the kind of music. I mean, we see this all the time in people who sample and, you know, DJs who create music electronically, etc. Like we're creating we're using the same sound waves. We're turning them into music by the context and by the listener's experience. So the first time you hear a heavy metal piece of music, you might think that is not music, that is noise. But let's say you have learned to love heavy metal, and that's all you listen to. And now you hear it. And it's like the most sublime music to you. What has changed? Your brain now interprets that same sound wave in a completely different way. It gives you a totally different experience. It like, you know, triggers a totally different set of emotional centers. And the physical stimulus hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed is your brain, and how essentially you've now interpreted this sound. I'm starting to regret calling you like the, the, my pornographic brain is melting down or whatever. I just literally cannot process all of it. No, no, no. Actually, this is fascinating stuff. And I'm so glad you're here by the way. Now what I am going to get to the, the musical, I guess I'll call it career, the musical aspect of your life as uh, sure. I, I got it right. You're an opera singer, correct? You're classically yeah, trained vocalist, but classically trained. You know, yeah. when you said metal music, I'm like, oh, I wonder what the opera community thinks about, metal and i thought well do i want to go there like you know do you look down from the high mountain and say well you know <laughs> is yeah. that, is metal music i don't know you know so well there you know there are some people that do and i am not friends with those people because I <laughs> disagree with them. <laughs> you know it, i mean because, how, yeah. how can you be wrong for stating a preference right i mean if metal does right. it for you or country or rap or you know whatever i mean if it rings your bell go for it right yeah. And like, you know, it's like it's it's not like any person with a guitar with an electric guitar becomes a star in the heavy metal world. Right. Like the people who who rise to the top are super talented and they're very, very good at what they do. And, you know, you got to respect that, you know, no matter what kind of musician you are. But, you know, the thing that, that makes me most sad is when, like, someone will come up to me and they'll say, you know, um, you're an opera singer and you've got a lot of vocal training. And I really love this one singer, Adele, whatever, whoever it is. And I, do they, are they good? Are they a good singer? <laughs> and I'm just like, you just told me that you love this singer. Yeah. Like, how can they not be good? You know, like, how can they not be a, a great singer? Well, I mean, you know, Cohen, I, I think you know? some of that's got to speak to... 
I don't know. It's, I almost want to call it an in-group superiority. Like, you know, the totally. it's back when disco and rock and roll were going at each other back in the disco sucks, man. You know, and it was mm-hmm. one of those things where I'm mm-hmm. like, well, if somebody enjoys it, it doesn't suck for them. But I think it was kind of an in-group superiority. Would you agree? I mean, this is sort of, well, my opinion trumps your opinion because mine is superior. Yeah. I mean, we started talking too about authority. Like, so I should be an authority in the singing voice, right? So it does, you know, in some ways it makes sense for someone to ask me for my ex quote unquote expert opinion about something that I'm supposed to be an authority on, but music just doesn't work that way. And I don't think that, you know, I think that's actually been a big, a big problem in the opera world is that for too long, you know, there has been this idea that opera is somehow the height of the art. And that's really like, you know, not doing well right now for opera. I don't want to say this without, you know, swearing or saying anything. Swear all <laughs> you, know? you want. I mean, uh, okay. just express yeah. yourself, you know, engage I mean, your brain. Like, so It's biting opera in the ass, right? Because now you've got, you've turned away a lot of our audience members and there's just, a, you know, there's a, there's, yeah, there, it's really hard to find an audience for a lot of these shows because people are like, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to go somewhere and feel like I'm stupid because I don't get it or, you know, I don't understand it. So, I mean, that's problematic. But I also think that we can say that I like this better than that, but I don't know that we can say, you know, a priori, just one is better than another. It's not like a sprinter where you can actually look at the numbers. <laughs> you know, Natalie and I went to, this is totally a digression, but you and I are just chatting and you're fun to talk about when, with this kind of stuff. But we we bought tickets and went to the uh, Andre Bocelli concert, which was uh-huh. uh, 100 miles down the highway. So we drove to Oklahoma City. I'd never been to a show like that before, but I didn't know a lot about the artist. I was intrigued. You know, sure. he, was, he was blind and he had spent decades mm-hmm. in the industry and whatnot. And I was reading about it. And there was that kind of talk, this sort of lofty, well, you know, many people in the legitimate classical music arena consider him to be a little bit too, you know, popular and a little too lightweight. And it was this sort of speaking down your nose snobbery. And then I looked at the auditorium filled with 15,000 people standing at their feet, cheering and having the time of their lives. And I thought, well, he's legitimate to them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's really problematic. I mean, he's not going to sing on the stage of the best opera houses in the US, but that's not his stage, right? His stage is the arena, and he's killing it. And he's doing a really great job. And, you know, you know, I think that there is a place too for the kind of acrobatic art that opera can lead to. And sometimes maybe the difference between like, uh, this is maybe not the best analogy, but gymnastics versus like ice skating dancing or like even even like you know figure skating and like ice dancing versus figure skating like there's some of it requires more athleticism and a different kind of training and some of it requires more artistry and a sort of different set of talent but i don't know that you could say necessarily that the top person in either field is better than the other right like um well you you have to wonder if there's a little professional jealousy i mean you know he's making a shit ton of cash and you know he's got millions of album sales Mm -hmm. and you know there are other people who have committed themselves a hundred thousand percent to this profession and yet they're not a known quantity right they Mm -hmm. they're essentially a a very very niche artist and you wonder if some of that's professional jealousy i know you and i are just i'm just a lot of it is so i think a lot of it is i think a lot of it is professional jealousy and we see that in every genre career whatever like i see that a lot about neuroscientists like god forbid you're a neuroscientist who writes a popular press book Mm. and then try to go to a conference i mean the same thing happens right people say you're not serious anymore you're pandering to the crowd etc etc 
So I think that happens in, in every kind of discipline. But I think especially so, yeah, I think it is really problematic in opera. And and I think that actually, you know, I think that is a, a mistake that, that opera is making. Well, I'll um, tell you how, how non-artsy I am. And this is a confed. By the way, I'm talking here with Dr. Uh, Indre Viscontis, who is a neuroscientist and a psychologist, and she is a classically trained opera singer. But I'm wondering, like I picture you on the opera stage singing in a language that is not your native language. And you're like, you know, you're in like this ivory white paint with horns and there's a big foam yep. skull behind you. And there's, you know, people in uh -huh. black with wings dropping from cables in the sky. It's very, I mean, that's what I think of when I think of opera. I mean, is, yep. is that the kind of stuff that goes on when you're on stage? I mean, what are we talking about? Um, I mean, there, there, there is some of that, depending that you're, what you're describing is usually like Wagner and I don't have the right voice for Wagner, okay. but, um, okay. but to be completely honest in the last couple of years, I've transitioned more to directing operas rather than singing in them in part, because I just got really frustrated with working with directors who I felt really did not know what they were doing and, you know, were anyway, but yeah, I mean, I think that to me, the, the definition of opera really is unamplified singing that tells a really great human story at large, right? So everything is bigger in opera and more dramatic. And uh, But to me, it's like, it's just a great playground. But there's also people who say to me like, ah, oh, you know, I like all kinds of music. I just don't like opera. And to me, that is fine. But it's also like saying like, ah, oh, you know, I, I like all kinds of films, but I just don't like movies, like, you know, movies. And it's like, but there's so many different genres of movies. <laughs> like so maybe they need to be introduced to something that's sort of on their frequency. You know, maybe it was yeah! like, it's like when I went to sushi yeah. the first time, I ordered the wrong thing. Like I needed a gateway sushi yeah. roll to introduce yeah. me yeah. to it and then I fell in love with it kind of a thing maybe. exactly so. exactly and maybe not everybody fall in love with it but I have a few gateway operas to suggest to people <laughs> this <laughs> is none of this is in my prep none of this I <laughs> you and I are just off on a bunny trail and I'm hoping the audience has taken the journey with me and I, I think probably most of them have because this is fun stuff to talk about so now I'm going to grab the rope and I'm going to draw myself back onto dry land here and we're going to I want to talk a little bit more about belief in the brain okay and I'm going right, to throw out the word again I'm going to throw out the word bias all right mm -hmm. and I'm a former evangelical I left a faith-based mm -hmm. culture where we Mm. It took a lot of pride in belief, like I believe, and mm -hmm. I know it's true because I believe it's true and I believe it on mm -hmm. faith. And this was a point of pride. And so when you exit that kind of fundamentalism, you really mm -hmm. resist the notion of belief as much as, you know, I don't just want to believe it. I want to know if it's true. But many right. of us in the skeptical community, and I'm as guilty as anybody we then say, well, you know, I'm no longer chained to my biases. You know, I'm, I'm no, now I'm now rational. Right, 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 right. right, right. And uh, when I uh -huh. hear somebody say that they are unbiased, <laughs> I tend to be even more suspicious that they're biased, right? So if I, I mean, of course they are. If yeah. I want to be more objective, if I want to be less biased, how do we solve the human bias problem? What's your perspective? I mean, again, I don't know that it's a problem to be solved. I think it's a feature to be aware of, because I think that if you didn't have some bias, the world would be very, very difficult to understand. I mean, imagine, again, you're like walking into a scene and 
Okay, let's say you're walking and does anybody do this anymore? Like you're walking and I've just I, I've just watched a whole bunch of like bank heist movies. So like do you, you walk into a bank and you go to a teller. I mean, nobody does this. But like you walk into a bank, right? You know what to do. You go up to the teller, you like, you know, give them your bank number, ask for a bunch of cash, they give you the cash. There's a whole script. You understand what to do. And like, let's say you didn't know what a bank was. You didn't like you're, you know, a five-year-old child who's never heard about any of this. You walk into a bank and you don't know what to do. Like it's very confusing. Where do you go? Who do you talk to? What what are you supposed to be here for? So we have these schemas, we have these models of how the world works, and they are really useful to us. I think we get into problems when we don't recognize that we have these models, and we come from that place to understand something new. We all have them. And I think that the key is to figure out what is yours when it comes to the thing that you're really concerned about. So maybe in your case, it's about, I don't know, the existence of a God, right? I'm going back to your evangelical past and your kind of moral rules and what, you know, what you should, the kinds of decisions you have to make like that, you know, the existence of the God that you know through your religion allows you to make decisions about your life that would bring you closer to God or at least not anger your God if your God is a mean one. So you have to know those rules. You have to have that bias. So then like, how then do you translate that and figure out where your biases go and where they, you know, what it is that you can do later on when you reject that God or when you decide that that's not true, you still have to have some kind of model or compass or framework. Otherwise, I think then it becomes the whole world becomes just a series of decisions and and confusing things that that you don't know where to go from. I don't know. Now I'm just kind of babbling, but like, I got you. (laughs) <laughs> well, and let um, me, I'm going to throw this out and you do not have to answer. And I'll tell okay. the audience, like, I don't know what your religious position is. I, I don't, I don't care. Like I, 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 this is not why we're speaking here. Okay. Sure. Um, but people will often say, why do human beings seem to have such a need to believe? Yeah. Whether it's yeah. in a God or a, a, mm-hmm. a higher power and call it what you want. They'll often phrase yeah. it as something greater than us is out there. We tend to lean into that. Have you delved into that at all? And people's tendency to say, yes, I want to believe. What's that about? Yeah. So, you know, this is not like, you know, from a neuroscience perspective, this is not, I'm going to speculate as a human being that, okay. you know, has done right, but not, this is not my area. My background, I, I was raised Catholic, you know, looking back at my diaries when I was 15. I mean, I, boy, was I a believer in God. That was a big, like, you know, I, I just was so Yeah, I thought I, I, thought I detected idea. some Catholic guilt on you there just coming <laughs> <Definitely>. through. <laughs> right there. <laughs> Um, and you know, my, I'll tell you my quick journey, you know, uh, and then I went to grad school and, you know, started to question some of those beliefs. I started to really see some of the challenges that the Catholic religion has had to face and want to turn away from it. But the turning point for me was I was, I hosted this show on the Oprah Winfrey network called Miracle Detectives. And I was the scientific foil to a believing journalist. And we went around and we looked at people's miraculous experiences and kind of investigated them. And the amount of vitriol that I got after doing that show from people who were Christians, basically like, you know, hoping that my children die, that my daughter gets raped. Like, I mean, the kind of anger and disgusting hate mail that I got after that made me completely turn away from mm. anything related to Christianity, but also I make me made me realize that I am an atheist. <laughs> like, okay. just, well, I didn't I honestly did not know one way or the other. And we yeah. have conversations yeah. of all shapes and stripes. And as someone who was formerly religious, I don't hold to 
you know, this sort of marginalizing of people who do believe in a God. I'm interested more in yeah. in their areas yeah. of expertise and are they credible? And, you know, you passed the test <laughs> with flying colors. <laughs> you know, that's why I reached out to you. So, I mean, you I appreciate but, yeah. you sharing your story. But so let me answer your question of like, so why do people believe? And, I, you know, I can tell that, you know, from my own personal experience, from, from interviewing a lot of these people who had experienced these kinds of miracles, I think there are a number of different reasons why people believe. But I also think that our brains evolved in a period in our evolutionary history when we started living in bigger and bigger social groups. So when you think about like, what are the kinds of forces that shaped the selection of the brain that we have, a lot of them were social. And a lot of them were about how do you have a group of individual humanoid type you know, people get together and cooperate and live well together. And I think then this idea that there is something bigger than just me is actually tied to a lot of the ways in which our, our, our brains function and they work and what brings us joy. I think we do actually feel a sense of awe or a reward when we feel connected to others and or something higher than us. And I think, you know, a lot of the atheists that I've worked with, too, search for that. I mean, they, you know, there's there's something called the Sunday Assembly that was kind of created in order to sort of help people who don't have a church to go to get that sense of awe. A lot of people who, who don't believe go to, you know, become really passionate about music or the skeptical community. I mean, like yeah. going to conferences and like, you know, it's still this like sense of belonging and sense of awe. So I do think that a belief in I'm not alone in the universe, my existence is not meaningless. I think that all is built in to our kind of reward pathways and the sense of connecting and belonging. We just interpret it in different ways, whether it's like because I'm in the hands of a higher power. And a lot of you know people find that very comforting, especially when they face things like that their existence is being challenged, like they're going to die or, you know, some other type of identity, like that's when they turn to whatever this higher power is. And a lot of people who don't believe in God then hold on to this idea of the universe, right? Like there's this big, huge universe and I'm part of something much bigger than me in that way. And even if my life is totally inconsequential, I can be in awe of this greater thing. Yeah, it's like um, so, uh, yeah. we, we come from stardust and to stardust exactly. we shall return. There's kind of a poetry right. to that. But would you say that our that our our minds are meaning machines? Do you think we're meaning generators? Yeah. In fact, that's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm, try I'm trying to put together a book proposal that proves this um, because I think that's exactly right. I think that we search for meaning in almost everything that we do from our very first perceptions, like the very early sort of perceptual stuff is like we don't again, we don't look at the vista because we're just, you know, like we look at it and we see it beautiful because it means something. Right. It means that like, you know, I'm high up here or like I see what nature has has created or what man has built or, you know, et cetera. Like we see meaning in, even in something that is just as esoteric as like, you know, the outside physical world of view. But certainly we see that in the way we remember and how we sort of reconstruct our experiences in our memory. So one example that I've recently been fascinated by is this question of like, you know, two people go to a party, something happens, one person feels as if they were violated or they were violated. The other person has no recollection of that ever happening and in their belief system does not even believe that that was even a possibility. And why is it like, so you put two people on the stand and they both recount what happened and their memories are very, very different. Who's lying? 
So most people will say, well, it's either the person who was the perpetrator that is lying and like clearly they must be lying because this happened. Let's say it actually did happen. So that's the quote unquote truth. Or two, it's the victim. You know, let's say it didn't happen. Well, the victim is misremembering. The victim is the one who's lying. But neither of them need to be lying in terms of how they actually remember the event. Because for one person, that event might have been totally meaningless. It was just a party. And it didn't didn't track. They didn't track it. It didn't change their life. And for the other person, it was a major turning point. Changed their life completely. They couldn't go out anymore. They had all of this, you know, trauma they had to deal with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the way that we remember the past is tied to what meaning it has in our future <laughs> and how it, you know, affects our behavior later. I want to talk more about memory and how it occasionally makes me really nervous. There's a shoplifter at a grocery store, and I'm standing right next to the shoplifter, and somebody remembers me being the shoplifter. Like, their memory is wrong, it associated wrong, and before you know it, I'm in the hot seat. Holy cow. Can we trust our memories? When should we distrust our memories? Let's talk more with our neuroscientist guest coming up. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I am speaking in Minneapolis. Looking forward to this trip. September 17th. Would love to see you there. I'm hosted by the Humanists of Minnesota. And all the details are at SethAndrews.com slash event. So if you're anywhere near Minneapolis, September 17th, I would love to see you there. Continuing my conversation now with special guest neuroscientist, Dr. Indre Viscontis. 
We, I had a memory expert on the show years and years, and we were talking about how they had set up a situational. It was like a, a fake mugging in a park. And they sent mm-hmm. in a guy, and he's wearing like a red jacket, and the woman's wearing mm-hmm. a blue coat, and he steals her white purse, and he runs off to the West. All right. So mm-hmm. it's very specific things happened. And then they asked the eyewitnesses what went down. Mm-hmm. And people came up with all kinds of conflicting stuff. Well, no, he was mm-hmm. wearing a green jacket and the purse was red and mm-hmm. he ran off to the east. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, can we not say, well, this objectively happened a certain way and you are simply misremembering? I mean, is that fair? Absolutely. But you're talking about eyewitnesses that don't have skin in the game, which is different from the people to whom this actually, you know, who, who actually had the experience. And look, again, the person who had the experience and experienced it as a violation might be wrong objectively in the sense that if you replayed the tape, you know, you would see a lot of signs of maybe consent or, you know, some other. And, and, and you could see, um, and I'm not saying that either recollection is necessarily accurate, but in terms of how they remember it, they are not lying, right? I I don't think your memory is accurate at all because the reason that, you know, because you're reconstructing it all the time and you're going back and you're reconstructing it depending on how your political beliefs and, and, and how you feel in the moment. Like, for example, if you go back, I was shocked when I read my diary having, you know, come out as an atheist, whatever that means. I went back and read this diary and like the amount of like religious fervor, I was like, who is this person? I do not <laughs> recognize this teenager. And if you had asked me, if I hadn't read that diary and you would have asked me how religious I was when I was 15, I would have been like, eh, take it or leave it. I, that would have been totally wrong and totally inaccurate. But you look back and you thought, wow, like I was, uh, I was a Jesus freak. I don't know, Jesus freak. We may not be of the right age to be a Jesus freak, but uh, yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, yeah, I was clearly very religious and very proud of my beliefs in that, you know, religion. Yeah. And and it's totally different from from who I am today, which is fascinating. And yet I still feel like I am this continuum of consciousness the whole way through. Like, I'm oh, still me. Okay, I I'm changed, coming back. Right? To, I'm coming back to that because you bring up another point that's not in my prep. Damn it. I have to talk about. Uh, are you doing OK for time? You have another few minutes to yeah. indulge your host yeah, sure. here. OK, so I have said on this show often. If I was ever brought up on charges as a criminal mastermind and they took me into the courtroom, one of the most terrifying things to me is the idea of eyewitness testimony, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you bring in people, their subjective brains, they're remembering things differently or not at all, or their brains just filled in blanks that, I mean, and now I'm at the mercy of the eyewitnesses. You see the problem, right? Well, this is part of what we're talking about, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a huge problem. I don't think eyewitness testimony should play any role in the majority of any kind of objective trial or whatever. Like I, I totally, I mean, I'm totally on board with that because I just, yeah, I don't think it's accurate and I don't know how we can know whether or not it's accurate. I think physical evidence is, is really what we should go on. Does that mean that a lot of perpetrators are going to get off without being charged? I mean, yeah, and I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I, you know, I'm not an attorney, I'm not a judge, but I think that it's really problematic 
when a case is based mainly on eyewitness testimony and the jury finds it so, so, so are so swayed by it. I mean, I mean, this look, this is what Miracle Detectives was all about. It was an eyewitness telling me their experience of what happened, whether it was, you know, stigmata or like, you know, this one guy who said he has x-ray vision and can see a tumor in someone across the room. That's what I had to go on. And the real challenge was finding physical evidence to either corroborate or contradict their statements. And it's really hard. But, you know, I think that that is really problematic. I don't think that we can rely, we shouldn't rely on eyewitness testimony the way we have because of all these things that I've been describing. But I also think that we can't say that a person is lying on the stand when they say they remember something differently because I don't think they're lying. I think their brain is, I mean, they might be lying. Look, I'm not saying they're never lying. I got you. But I, I think that there are times where we just have to understand that that's not going to be a reliable witness. Yeah, that's I mean, not we don't a- want to step into the trap of saying if someone said something horrible happened, we don't want to dismiss them and say, well, you were just biased and it's all perception. I mean, there right. there is some usefulness, but it's it's messy and there's no really good answer. I mean, that's fair. I, I mean, yeah, it's tough because I think a lot of people who are victimized, they don't have any other physical evidence that they can point to. But when you start seeing like, 10, 15, 20 people yeah. coming out and saying stories that are awfully similar. Yeah, I think that the likelihood of someone coming out and falsifying or lying about something that happened to them gets, gets less and less. Nobody wants that kind of attention. Talking here with the neuroscientist psychologist, Dr. Indre Viscontis. In your Wondrium series, you said that our brains are growing. Did I catch that? I mean, our brains are reshaping. Is my brain changing? What's happening? I'm like, is from decade to decade, am I evolving? I mean, you're definitely changing. I don't know if you're growing, if that means that you're like adding neurons. Oh, that hurts. That cuts me. Um, No, I don't mean just you. I mean, all of us, Um, except unless you're a child, right? So, I mean, yeah, certainly there's a lot of development, obviously, that happens during childhood and early adolescence and even in your early 20s. Like the front part of your brain, your prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop until you are in your early 20s, which is actually why I think we have a lot of issues with, you know, young kids who are picking up guns and they're often 18, 19. They're in that period of time where their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. But anyway, we don't have to talk about that. It's a whole other show. Um, Yeah, that's a whole other show. But yeah, so what happens, like, let's say now we're considering the fully developed brain, we're start at like 25, right? So what, what happens after that? Well, in some ways, it just just a long, slow decline in terms of processing speed. So the amount of like, you know, sort of how quickly your brain communicates with itself, etc, can start to decline. But there are a lot of other ways in which your brain changes. And there's a little bit of debate out still in neuroscience about whether you actually grow new neurons. There's two potential places in the brain where that might happen. They're both involved in forming new memories, which I think is really interesting. And I say I would say the jury's still out, but it looks like we probably do grow maybe some little local neurons. But the majority of the change happens in terms of the wiring. So when you're learning a new skill and you can learn a new skill, even in old age, it's just that you might have to approach it differently because you have a different brain. You actually change the physical structure of the brain in terms of how your neurons are connecting and talking to each other. And so it is changing all the time. And I think that's one of the, you know, one, you know, people say, well, can I just like freeze my brain, put it in a vat 
And then once we figure out how to like, you know, save the human body, put that same brain back onto a body and just be me. Um, and the answer is, I don't think so, because your brain is a biological organ that is active. And if it's not active, it's not your brain. It's not like, you know, it's not like it can just get restarted, I don't think, because it's just this like series of very complicated connections. So it is changing. There are biological limitations to how much your brain can change. So just like there are physical limitations to how much your muscles and joints can learn, like if you're 60 and you want to run a marathon, that's probably possible with a lot of training, but you're probably not going to be a world-class gymnast because you just don't, you know, the way that your musculature works, etc., so yeah, so I think that your brain is definitely changeable. I think that it's not this static thing. Although, to me, the important thing is always to tie your behavior to neuroanatomy because neuroanatomy on or the brain on its own is not interesting. What's interesting is how it affects human behavior. And as you get older, we tend to get more stuck in our ways, right? We tend to not seek out new types of music. We listen to the same stuff over and over and over again, or the same genres. We tend to do the same things. We tend to have the same rituals. We tend to like do the same things over and over and over again. And so that means that your brain is going to also get stuck in these kinds of habits. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a possibility for change. It's just that it gets harder to do it because our behavior doesn't change that much as we get older. It's interesting. The, um, videos I've seen of people who have advanced Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. They can't remember their name, their kids' names. They can't remember if they had breakfast. But then they'll mm -hmm. put like a guitar in their hands and they mm -hmm. will play and sing an entire library of music perfectly from yeah. memory. You've yeah. done some work with people who are, you know, they're neurodivergent. I don't know what the word you would use mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. uh, can we talk a little bit about uh, how... The brain holds on to some things and yet not others? Yeah. I mean, I think Alzheimer's is a, is a really great example because it tells us about the different kinds of memory that we have in our brains, the sort of different systems of memory. So one that you described, like, you know, playing the guitar and, you know, having this big repertoire of, of music that you already know is a type of skill memory that is actually based on parts of the brain that are not as affected by Alzheimer's disease. But keeping track of a conversation, remembering what just happened, those are functions of the part of the brain that is very much among the first to be affected by Alzheimer's disease. And so Alzheimer's gives us this picture of all the different ways in which experience is etched into our brains. Some of it is conscious and in the moment and one, one trial learning, like what did we just do before we got onto this conversation or what, what did we talk about half an hour ago? That is one type of remembering, one type of like conscious remembering, which is actually very different from the type of memory that you create as you develop a skill like playing the guitar, which takes multiple repetitions, takes, you know, years of training, etc. So yeah, so there are many different ways in which our experiences are represented in the brain, some conscious, some unconscious, some conscious from what just happened in the last 24 hours, some of what happened 30 years ago. As we draw this to a close, you've been very generous with your time. Let me bring us back to a practical application where we are sure. talking about a lot on this show about how do we how do we filter the false from the true, or at least what is mm -hmm. supported by evidence yep. and what is not. How do we overcome our biases? 
Uh, I heard it said, and maybe you can validate or invalidate, that common sense isn't necessarily good sense, or it's not necessarily mm -hmm. reason. You know, because often we'll say, "Well, it's just common sense," mm -hmm. and yet common mm -hmm. sense uh, isn't really a thing. Or, I mean, what's your take on it? I mean, look, if common sense is what I've learned before, what I've been told before, you know, the part of the model that we talked about, you know, the framework with which I see the world, that really, I think, is what people mean by common sense. I can predict what's going to happen because I've been here before or I just, you know, I have street smarts or common sense. Sure, that's part of the model. And sometimes we're wrong. And sometimes it's really based on evidence that wasn't there. I mean, one example, we've just been talking about Alzheimer's disease. For the last 20 years, we've been seeking out treatments that are based on this one molecular model of what's happening in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease. Well, it turns out that two seminal papers 20 years ago were fraudulent. And that we've built this common sense model of what causes Alzheimer's disease on fake data. And that, you know, so like that's just one example. But you can imagine how that could be true in a lot of ways in the world. Another example, I think, is when you talk about gender, like common sense is there's like biology of sex. If you have an X, Y chromosome, you know, you're, you're, you know, one gender, if you have XX, you're the other. And that's just how it is. It's in your DNA. But now we understand that you can actually have people who have a particular chromosomal, like they can, they can be XY or they can be XX and have the genitals of the other sex for reasons that happen in utero that or that even happen, you know, so even the common sense of like, of how that works too starts to break down as you start to learn more even about the biology, about the facts behind how that model was built. But do you and feel like some of it's reductive? We like it pat and simple. So if you say, well, it's just common yeah. sense, it's our way of just sort of, you know, saying, eh, you know, it's settled law and then we can move on to something else, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that is a big part of it, right? Um, because it's comforting to think there's just, it's just something I, I know it's common sense. I don't have to investigate. It is exhausting to think that you have to like investigate every single one of your beliefs. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You're, now I feel seen. <laughs> I feel seen Dr. Viscontis. Yeah. So, all right, we are out there with the false and the true We've got misinformation, pseudoscience, conspiracy theories that look awfully slick and polished and convincing, and we lean into many of them based on our biases. How do we filter through all the noise out there? How do I become a better thinker? You know, my strategy is to look at a variety of, of evidence. So don't limit yourself to either one stream or one type of media, you know, read a lot of different books, watch a lot of different media, go have a lot of different experiences. The best way to check your model and update it is to go and have new experiences travel the world, talk to other people. And I think it's it's when we get stuck doing, you know, in our own little bubbles, doing the same things, listening to the same, you know, stuff over and over and over again, that, you know, our biases become entrenched, and then it becomes really difficult to see the truth. But if you go, I mean, just, and this is true in all science, right? Any kind of real scientific theory or model needs to be built on converging lines of evidence. You don't just have one paper that tells you the quote unquote truth about something. You look at the problem from many different angles. And if they all seem to point to the same solution or the same model, then you can be confident that that model is correct. And I think that's true about, you know, almost anything we do in life. You know, you need to look at converging lines of evidence and not just stick to your one narrow view. Oh, you know, the scientific community, they want us 
to think that the evidence <laughs> matters. You know, we tend to do a lot of that. You know, oh, this is just what the system yep. would expect us to believe if we're going to be sheeple. It's so That's right. frustrating out there. And I'm sure it's frustrating for you as an educator, right? Because a lot of times the more evidence you present, the more they believe the evidence is invalid or fabricated or part of a, a cabal. You know, you, uh -huh. scien you neuroscientists are all down there in the basement and you're all coming yeah. up with a master scheme to deceive the world kind of deal. Yeah, yeah, and we all have we all have tons of funding from all these organizations <laughs> and big pharma and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. And yep, yep, oh. we're just rolling in the dough. Oh, I gotcha. You <laughs> pornography conscious people are down there trying to ruin the world. Dr. Indre Viscontis, let me uh, include some links to uh, your site, uh, who you are. Your, uh, I'll put the Wondrium link in there. You've got a great lecture called The Justifying Mind. It's on YouTube. Mm -hmm. It was given a few years back at the University of San Francisco. Just follow, follow her. Follow her work. Read her stuff. Listen to the stuff she's got to say. Uh, you have just been a real joy. I appreciate you slumming <laughs> and joining me on the <laughs> show. You're an absolutely stellar guest. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much, Seth. Thanks for having me on. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring The Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.